This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. As uh, Jim said, at the University of Minnesota, uh, we were under the influence of uh, one of the strongest uh, surgical departments uh, probably uh, uh, that has ever been assembled. And Owen Wangenstein was our professor, and he said to us that any time that we thought we might have a new idea or something important along those lines, we should consult the German literature because almost certainly somebody had already uh, looked into it, uh, probably had done some experiments and discarded it. Well, we found that we could go back uh, even longer than that uh, to 500 BC, when this uh, Chinese surgeon, uh, who you'll note lived 250 years, um, was uh, the... Almost as long as Mike DeBakey, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, conceived of and performed uh, the first uh, heart transplant. But actually, uh, the, if you will, the modern history of heart transplantation is only about 100 years old. And these experiments uh, were done at the University of Chicago by Alexis Carell and Charles Guthrie. And this was even before the University of Chicago had a medical school. They were working in the physiology laboratories uh, dedicated uh, uh, to a philanthropist uh, by the name of Hull. And what they did was to suture these puppy hearts into the necks of adult mongrel dogs. Well, not much information, of course, uh, came from this work since the uh, suture materials were primitive uh, and uh, uh, probably the hearts would beat for a few hours, uh, but nothing uh, came of it except uh, a Nobel Prize, of course, uh, for Alexis Carell. This is a picture of the man who probably did uh, most of the work at that time with Carell, Charles Guthrie, and they worked together for only about six months when Guthrie uh, had enough of it and went uh, to Washington University, St. Louis, and became the first of a distinguished uh, number of chairmen in the physiology department. Uh, Carell had enough money, though, having uh, been awarded the Nobel Prize in 1912, the year of the Titanic, he had enough money to get married, and this is a, a picture taken in 1913 uh, of the happy couple. <laughs> She doesn't look like, look like much fun for a French girl, does she? Uh, well, Carell was uh, one of, like many Nobel laureates, uh, he knew, uh, uh, he was an expert in many fields. And one of them uh, was the development of the artificial heart. And you see here uh, with Charles Lindbergh, uh, he's looking at a device which was held to be the first successful artificial heart. But obviously it was simply a perfusion device uh, 
that kept a bit of heart muscle alive uh, for some 20 years. But Corel was an incredibly strong personality, or Lindbergh was not so strong. I don't know uh, which uh, uh, obtained. But at any rate, he convinced Lindbergh during World War II that he should join the America First Party, which was an isolationist party. And uh, uh, Corel uh, uh, also at that time was writing uh, a bestseller book called Man the Unknown, which is a very apt uh, title, I think. At any rate, uh, uh, Lindbergh, as a matter of fact, even went to Germany and received, uh, uh, just before the outbreak of the war in Europe, a decoration uh, by Hermann Goering, uh, who was, of course, the chief of the uh, German Air Force. But uh, to Lindbergh's credit, uh, as the war went on, uh, he actually flew combat missions with the Navy uh, in the South Pacific. Well, Corel died in 1944, but because at least uh, of uh, an alleged collaboration with the Vichy government under Pierre Laval and Marcel Pétain in uh, uh, France, uh, he was uh, persona non grata in his own uh, country. Well, not much more was done in heart transplantation until the middle 1930s uh, when the group at the Mayo Clinic, uh, uh, a very uh, distinguished uh, group uh, under the direction of Frank Mann, uh, decided and found in the dogs that they could sacrifice all the vessels of the neck and not have any uh, serious uh, neurological deficits. So they stabilized these puppy hearts in a much better locus by using vessels on either side of the deck. And some of these hearts would beat for several days. But once again, not much scientific information, if you will, was gleaned from this work. Well, the Germans, ever since they were interested, or the Russians, ever since they've been interested in the two-headed dog experiments, also were interested in heart transplantation. And in the middle 1950s, uh, they were putting the heart into this uh, uh, piggyback or auxiliary position in the chest uh, so that uh, some of the blood from this inferior pulmonary vein would come to the auxiliary heart, which would then pump it back into the aorta. But obviously, no uh, quantitative information uh, could be gleaned from these uh, essentially acute uh, experiments. Uh, this work was done by Sinitsyn and Demikoff, and this is a picture of Demikoff in the middle 1960s when he was still obviously a fairly young man, but he was a victim of some of the political problems in Russia, and for many years uh, he uh, was absented uh, from, the, uh, from scientific uh, and uh, a surgical view. But this is uh, really the individual who is the father of all transplantation, not just transplantation of the heart. And uh, Sir Peter Medwar, uh, in his uh, work again that started during World War II when he was trying to use skin grafts uh, on individuals who were severely burned uh, during the Battle of Britain. 
And he, of course, uh, uh, saw how that these were rejected, and he provided, finally, with some most elegant experiments, the immunologic basis uh, for uh, homographed uh, rejection, and in fact, uh, uh, also went on uh, to work in the field of tolerance, uh, in, admittedly, in rodents, but nonetheless was able to establish immunologic tolerance uh, between uh, donor and recipient pairs. But it is uh, uh, to him that I think uh, we all uh, give credit uh, for the beginnings of the field, the true field of transplantation. Well, we were so excited by this and also the fact that uh, uh, Dr. Garbodi was doing all of the clinical heart surgery, so we had plenty of time to work in the laboratory. And in 1958, uh, we began to think about orthotopic transplantation of the heart. Now, orthotopic simply means uh, that it's, the heart is placed in the same position in the chest uh, as was the uh, diseased heart, let us say, or the hearts of the animals, because these experiments were all begun, of course, uh, in uh, the canine. So these were the uh, problems that we could envision. Uh, immediately, there had not yet been a successful way to do it, uh, orthotopically, all of the previous work had been done heterotopically or in the neck or the abdomen of the experimental animal. Uh, we knew also uh, that there would be this interval of time between uh, the heart being removed from the donor and the circulation reestablished uh, in the recipient. And the heart is the most prodigious uh, a utilizer of oxygen of any organ in the body, including the brain. So obviously the preservation of the heart between donor and recipient was an important consideration. <coughs> Next, uh, we didn't know if the performance of the heart, which would be denervated, of course. Now when the kidneys transplanted or the liver or the skin, uh, denervation is not uh, a problem. Uh, but the heart depends a large portion of its performance uh, on innervation, which uh, would clearly uh, be severed uh, in a transplant situation. And the pattern of homograph rejection, uh, so far work had been done in kidney transplants and in skin grafts, but it wasn't known uh, what it would be, uh, what the pattern would be with respect to the heart. Uh, teleologically, I suppose we hope that the animal might be smart enough not to reject something as important to him as a transplanted heart. And then the control of rejection was just beginning then to change uh, from uh, total body irradiation uh, to, uh, uh, to so that the immune system would not react to foreign tissue uh, to a chemical uh, control of the immune reaction. Uh, this work was uh, done in Boston by Damaschek and Schwartz in 1959 with the discovery of 6-mercaptopurine, uh, which was a very active chemical for immunosuppression. And this was, I suppose, one of the few advances in medicine in the city of Boston that did not come out of the Harvard uh, complex. 
And then finally, uh, one of the things that continues to be a problem today, of course, is the numbers of donors and also, at that time, the definition of death with respect to the potential heart donor. Well, this is a picture of our original group. I show it because it's such a motley uh, outfit. Uh, uh, this was our perfusionist and veterinarian, Raymond Stouffer from Oregon. This was our Chinese uh, gentleman who was, uh, uh, actually ran the laboratory. This is a Filipino, and this was our French-Canadian nurse who was being looked at very carefully by uh, Richard Lauer, who was our first uh, resident in cardiac surgery. This is a homemade table for the procedures here. The instruments were boiled up over here in the corner. We didn't have even an autoclave at that time. And this was up, of course, in San Francisco at the corner of Clay and Webster Streets. I think you can see that some blood was spattered here on this table. So the situation uh, was far uh, from ideal. This is a more professorial picture of Richard Lauer, who went in 1965 to be the chief of cardiac surgery at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond. And he really is the mentor uh, for that individual that Jim had trouble remembering, uh, Chris Barnard. Since Barnard visited uh, Lauer in 1967 during the summer, found out how to do heart transplants, and then went back uh, and found a donor uh, fairly quickly. <laughs> well, the, uh, the surgical method was the easiest uh, part of the procedure, and this is a picture taken from one of those very early experiments. This is a left uh, thoracotomy in the dog uh, whose uh, uh, vital organs are maintained by cardiopulmonary bypass with all the cannulae in uh, uh, peripherally so that we have no tubes at all in the heart. What we did was simply to leave behind these segments of the atria because the atrium uh, in the dog is a little bit like wet tissue paper. It's very difficult to suture without there being uh, vast uh, hemorrhagic uh, problems. And so uh, by leaving uh, a lot of this material behind, we could bunch up uh, the uh, uh, tissue and thereby minimize uh, the uh, uh, bleeding. You can see this old-time uh, Satinsky clamp uh, through the transverse sinus separating the aorta and the pulmonary artery uh, from the atrial tissue or the inflow tracts of the heart. So what we did was to put all these little venous connections together in one long suture line, which was very easy uh, to accomplish. And Lauer could do this operation in about a half hour. But again, during that time, uh, there was this uh, significant embarrassment uh, to the donor heart with, with no oxygen. So what we did then, as in fact we still do in the operating room and in transplantation, is to put the heart in cold solution. And we found in some of Lauer's uh, experiments that, in fact, uh, Dr. Roy Cohn, who's with us today, was uh, one of the authors of this paper that appeared, I think, about 1962, where seven hours of uh, 
of uh, so-called uh, uh, suspended life was endured successfully by hearts protected only by this immersion uh, in cold uh, saline solution. The heart is a, is a shell, so to speak, as opposed to the kidney and the liver, which are solid organs. And so therefore, it's fairly easy to cool throughout the muscle of the heart by this very simple technique. Well, we begin then, after some success with these animals, to see what the homograph pattern, the rejection of the homograph, looked like. And you can see here the very uh, significant uh, separation of the rejected tissue, the atrium uh, of the uh, donor heart, and the very normal atrial tissue here of the recipient. But you'll see, too, that this suture line is well healed, and this was an important point early on, uh, was to see if there could be a significant and firm healing uh, between the donor and the recipient. And here you can see, I think, uh, covered by endothelium, uh, but a couple uh, silt sutures. Well, uh, after uh, some experience with uh, rejection of just random selected uh, pairs of canine for heart transplant, we decided to use litter mates and to see if we could not get uh, extended survival uh, with these more closely uh, genetically related pairs. And uh, this turned out actually to be the case. This is an animal uh, that lived uh, for two months after heart transplantation without any immunosuppression and died actually of aortic valvular disease. And I think uh, some of you can see the calcium and the fibrosis here of the aortic valves. Uh, so this was uh, a different uh, type of uh, rejection, if you will, of the valvular tissues uh, with uh, litter mate uh, transplants. Well, what about uh, uh, the performance of the heart? We, we looked at it uh, with all the physiological parameters uh, that were at our command in those days, and uh, the cardiac output within a few days would come back to normal as a result probably uh, only of the trauma of the operation. Right-sided pressures were normal, there was no cardiac failure, and very rarely did we need to use any cardiotonic drugs. Now the other interesting thing, we had two kinds of electrocardiogram because we had a little bit of electrocardiogram from the retained tissues of the host and of course we also had uh, the electrocardiogram uh, from uh, the donor heart. And we could compare those two heart rates. You see this irregularity here of the retained uh, uh, atria uh, of, the, of the host and this is the very regular heartbeat uh, of the transplant. And so it was possible uh, to compare uh, what the heart should be doing uh, if it uh, were still in the same uh, animal uh, with what it actually was doing uh, with the transplant. Now, the late hemodynamics presented a different problem because then uh, immunosuppression was just beginning and so to look at the late hemodynamics, uh, we did a procedure that abrogated completely the rejection phenomenon. And this was simply by removing the heart, putting it in the cold saline for about a half hour, 
and then suturing the same heart back in the animal, the so-called cardiac autograft. And we found, uh, again, that the performance characteristics were very nearly normal. And then to our great interest in the autograft, we found re-innervation across these suture lines, and evidence for this could be found at about two months. Uh, so this uh, was something that we look forward to in the homograph, uh, but have rarely seen. I think Lauer felt that he documented it once in a canine homograph, and today it's very difficult for us to tell uh, in our patients so whether in fact uh, the heart is re-innervated. Well, I was getting very excited about all of this, of course, and in 1959, uh, the American College of Surgeons, which in those days met every, three, every third year in Atlantic City, and we're on the boardwalk, as you'll note, and I'm telling my old mentor, John Lewis, uh, uh, about this wonderful work we're doing, and you can see his lack of interest is uh, truly pronounced. Uh, this, incidentally, is Fred Cross, who was another one of the Minnesota residents in those days, who went to, uh, to Cleveland early on and is responsible for developing the K-Cross oxygenator, which one of the was one of the first successful uh, oxygenators for cardiopulmonary bypass and regular open-heart surgery. Well, uh, Lauer then uh, decided, of course, uh, to write this up. And in 1960, uh, this article appeared in the Surgical Forum. Uh, it was, what, the 46th Annual Congre Congress of the American College of Surgeons. And uh, this paper appear was uh, uh, on the program on Monday morning at 8.30. And the only people in the audience besides uh, uh, me uh, were the projectionists, of course, and uh, the uh, 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 individual who was supposed to preside over the, over the session and introduce the speakers, and I think a couple of people who were still cleaning up uh, from the party of the previous night. Uh, this entire work uh, took two pages uh, in that surgical forum, and this two pages uh, uh, these two pages, uh, it represents uh, the very beginnings of all the interest today in heart transplantation. I guess the point is that when you really have something to say, uh, you can say it in a very few words. You don't have to have a 20-page uh, complicated message. Well, we found right away that when we use the same protocol that everybody else had been using in kidney transplantation, that our animals were all dying of toxicity because the procedure of heart transplantation uh, is so much more complicated uh, and uh, is such a drain on the animal's resources as opposed uh, to a uh, kidney transplant. So what Lauer decided was that he would withhold immunosuppression until he felt that there was a homograft rejection crisis, if you will, or in fact uh, that the uh, heart of the transplant, uh, the transplanted heart, uh, was being attacked uh, by uh, the rejection process. And you can see then in these first five days how the R wave of the EKG began to diminish. 
And the only way we could diagnose rejection in those days, since the animal looked perfectly normal running around the laboratory, was to follow the EKG uh, twice a day. And you'll see here, as it began to diminish, uh, we felt uh, that a rejection crisis uh, was uh, accumulating in this uh, uh, patient animal. Therapy was begun, and you can see how the R-way was brought back to normal. Well, this meant uh, that long-term survival could be achieved, although taking very special care of these extremely uh, delicate uh, and involved preparations. Well, then, this in, is the first uh, living thing of any kind to survive one year after orthotopic transplantation of the heart. And you can see the 1960s hairdo on the nurse, and uh, it's a hairdo, I guess, that's uh, coming back uh, today. Well, in 1965, then, Lauer uh, wrote this paper on the long-term survival uh, of the orthotopic heart uh, transplant. And we felt, uh, at this time, if there could be some solution uh, to the donor situation, uh, that heart transplantation might very well uh, have an entry into clinical practice. Well, we're talking about it more and more. In 1965, uh, this group of so-called experts was assembled at St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco. Uh, this is Willem Kolf, who is the moderator of our uh, session. And you can see that he has just said something that must be uh, very funny. And uh, this is uh, John Nigerian, who at that time had uh, the orthotopic hair uh, of his own. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, he's laughing, I'm laughing, but Starzl, Tom Starzl, who is a preeminent transplant surgeon in the world, uh, was, as his, his custom, was leaping out of the chair and ready to go uh, uh, in full uh, enthusiastic uh, attitudes. He, he is a, a most marvelous individual. I saw his curriculum vitae the other day, and he had well over a thousand uh, papers uh, uh, covering essentially the same period of time uh, that our group has been active. Well, uh, this was too much uh, for uh, surgeons uh, uh, to handle, and the first human heart transplant uh, came about uh, in, of all places, Jackson, Mississippi. And it was done by Jim Hardy, who's an old friend of ours uh, through the years, uh, who had gone to the University of Mississippi and had dedicated himself to making uh, an excellent program in uh, uh, surgery at that institution, which heretofore had been a two-year uh, medical school. And here he's seen in this picture with Bobby Robbins, who is an assistant uh, professor at our own department uh, at this time. Well, the donor was not a human. It was a subhuman primate, a chimpanzee. And of course, there was nothing, there was no experimental evidence or any other reasonable evidence that such a transplant would succeed. And the patient, of course, expired on the operating table. 
But uh, again, uh, this uh, work was uh, still being debated and talked about. And as Bernard went back to South Africa uh, in December of 1967, uh, did the first human-to-human -human heart transplant. We can see uh, there was a lot of interest that year, I think because of the publicity, the notoriety, and the celebrity uh, that came uh, to Bernard during that period. And heart transplants were being done in places where you wouldn't want your atrial septal defect closed. <laughs> like India, heart transplants were being done in Bombay, India. Uh, they were being done in Buenos Aires, uh, uh, Argentina. In fact, uh, uh, Gaucho awoke one morning listening to the radio and said to his nurse, somebody's had a heart transplant. And the nurse said, yes, it was you. <laughs> and uh, so this, uh, this sort of thing, uh, of course, uh, brought about the expected cry for a moratorium in heart transplantation. And this uh, was uh, in 1970. Uh, the American College of Cardiology met in San Francisco and all of the deans of American cardiology at that time met and decided that heart transplants uh, should no longer be done. And as a matter of fact, uh, the Stanford University, uh, the chairman of the board of trustees, the president of the university, uh, the dean of the medical school, uh, two or three other deans, uh, all uh, called us in to one of the uh, uh, conference rooms in the dean's parlors and suggested that we should stop a heart transplantation. Well, one of the good things, I guess, about uh, Stanford is that you can listen uh, to all of the administrators and they may look uh, as a very distinguished group and that they may or may not know what they're talking about, but you don't need to abide by their <laughs> suggestions. And as a matter of fact, we did not and continued as you can see uh, with the transplant program. Now, there were problems with donor availability at that time, and in Houston, Oliphant and the Washington Post uh, developed this cartoon, which I called out of uh, some old slides uh, this morning of DeBakey and Cooley struggling uh, to obtain uh, donor uh, tissue. Uh, however, the Houston experience uh, was summarized by this article in, what is it, September of 1971 in Life magazine. And you may recall that Life magazine went out of print uh, shortly after this, and we thought in Palo Alto that that was probably one of the reasons uh, this kind uh, of reportage. You may wonder uh, where Bernard is today. <laughs> this there's this section in People magazine, I note. Uh, I see it, of course, only on airplanes. But uh, where they, they tell us where the people today are who were uh, celebrities of yesterday. And uh, uh, Bernard is no longer in medicine, uh, but he is still doing transplants for the Ford uh, motor car. Well, this is a picture that I didn't know we had until I looked at some old slides the other day, but this was the, our first transplant a few weeks after Bernard. Uh, you can see a fair number of people interested. Uh, uh, Ed Stinson is the uh, first assistant uh, here, 
And uh, this is Denver Nelson, who later went into neurosurgery in uh, uh, the northern part of the state. But there was a fair amount of... Uh, and then uh, a couple of days later, uh, Sparis uh, Andriopoulos assembled uh, this group of, uh, of press to listen to uh, Don Harrison tell a story of heart uh, transplantation. Uh, somewhere in this audience, by the way, is a very young uh, 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 Brokaw, uh, who is now, of course, the NBC Nightly News. Well, as of the first of last year, uh, 803 patients had undergone about uh, 900 heart transplants at Stanford. 566 of these lived at least one year. Uh, more than, now, more than uh, 370 patients are living and are being followed very carefully uh, by our cardiology associates. Our oldest patient now is uh, 23 years uh, after a heart transplant. Uh, this is uh, generally uh, what happens in a year's time. I noticed that th this was a period of nine months in 95, but I see uh, last year in 96, these figures are essentially the same. About 34 hearts, about 13 heart lungs, single lungs, and bilateral lungs. You might be interested in the recipient diagnosis as we do uh, more and more children or younger people uh, with cardiomyopathy it tends to dominate uh, the recipient list. We did have one extremely interesting tumor of the heart, though. This is a benign tumor, except for its presence in the left ventricle, which this is all that remains of the left uh, ventricular cavity. It's a histiocytic fibroma, uh, which, uh, of course, uh, was extremely uh, poorly tolerated by this 19-year-old woman who was biopsied uh, in Pittsburgh and then sent out for a transplant in the late 1970s. Well, there were problems as uh, heart transplantation uh, began to be of interest with some success reported by the Stanford group. Uh, Terence English uh, in Cambridge uh, started the uh, British heart transplant program once again, but he had all kinds uh, of uh, difficulty, as you can tell from this article, uh, where a sociologist and uh, probably a, even an ethicist is saying, stop this heart swap epidemic. And he says it even more elegantly in this slide when he said heart transplants are obscenely irrelevant. Uh, the English, of course, use our language much better than we do, and I thought that was uh, uh, a beautiful uh, statement. Now, uh, by 1980, though, more and more places were beginning to do heart transplantation, but not the Massachusetts General Hospital, which many of us abbreviate as man's greatest hospital. And it, it's uh, thought to be the center of all clinical wisdom in the United States. But even as late as 1980, uh, they decided the heart transplants uh, were not for them. And as a matter of fact, even though they've tried to catch up uh, during this interval, uh, they still are uh, lagging behind in the so-called science and clinical uh, heart transplants. We had uh, some significant problems in Palo Alto. 
uh, as you can see from this slide uh, that says uh, heart murder probe. And this was because of a very unfriendly and unconvinced coroner in Santa Clara County with respect to brain death and felt uh, that the surgeons at Stanford uh, were murdering these donors uh, for the purpose of uh, uh, heart transplantation. Well, uh, this turned out, of course, not to be the case. It does say here, Stanford surgery upset. I think uh, we were delayed a couple of days, but it was nothing uh, really serious. This, uh, this is, I'm not sure I should tell this little story, but uh, the Santa Clara coroner uh, was a German uh, gentleman by the name of Hausmann. And uh, during uh, the uh, war, World War II, uh, he was, uh, as a matter of fact, studied German uh, because of his background, and he wasn't just sure how it would turn out either. So uh, he was preparing uh, for either eventuality. <laughs> I must tell you, he is the, uh, I very rarely lose my uh, temper, uh, but the only time I was ever really uh, disturbed uh, was a visit uh, by this uh, uh, pathologist uh, to our office. As a matter of fact, I actually threw him out of the office. Well, at any rate, uh, this was just part of the problem and uh, it was uh, slow uh, to resolve. Well, the next big thing, we're looking at the experimental background. The next important part of the story is the technique for biopsying the heart. And this was something that we've had so much difficulty with these very fragile preparations in the animal laboratory. And then along comes uh, Philip Caves, a visitor uh, from Great Britain, a British American Heart Association fellow. And he said, I think we can actually take a piece of the heart out, look at it under the microscope, and determine whether it is uh, having any rejection. Well, what he did was to fashion this uh, little biotome, which was a, a piano wire with a little jaws on the end and a bit of a pistol grip, introduce it uh, uh, through the uh, external, external jugular vein in the animal and, of course, the internal jugular vein in the human and take a little bit of the right uh, apex uh, for looking at under the microscope. This is a picture of Caves, who was uh, a fantastic uh, contributor, hard-working gentleman, totally dedicated. Went back uh, uh, to Edinburgh uh, in Scotland, established an excellent uh, heart program, and then moved over to Glasgow, where he duplicated uh, that uh, success. But I have to tell this quick story about him when he was in Edinburgh at the Royal Infirmary, which was built maybe in the 1700s. And he wanted to take a portable x-ray on one of his patients on the ward. Well, the hospital administration told him that the floors have been here so long, they haven't been improved, and, and if you bring that x-ray machine up here on the ward, it'll probably uh, fall right through uh, the floor. Well, the next day, the Department of Medicine uh, was making rounds uh, on, on, the, on patients on that same floor. And so uh, Caves took the medical students, the residents, the professors, and weighed them all and tallied the weight 
and found that the weight was much more than the x-ray machine. And so the next day, he and the technician brought the x-ray machine up and took uh, the x-ray on the floor. So uh, uh, sometimes uh, that may be uh, strictly a surgical characteristic, but uh, uh, it does show the determination of that uh, fantastic individual. Now, he was joined in this work by Margaret Billingham, who I'm sure is well known to you because she's the world's foremost expert, as she says, on uh, the matter of the heart. And uh, uh, she has developed uh, techniques uh, for classifying these biopsies, uh, which now have been complicated because many committees, of course, have been working on it. Uh, but in the, its very essence is simply mild, moderate, severe, or resolving. So uh, the biopsy was very important because it told us about rejection, of course, very early on, but it also told us when rejection was resolving so that we could stop the additional immunosuppression. In 1980, again, because of a story that I'm not going to have time to tell you, but uh, we had the opportunity to introduce cyclosporin for heart transplantation, a new, less toxic, and uh, stronger immunosuppressant with respect uh, to homographed tissues. And we found right away that the incidence and severity of both rejection and infection uh, were uh, helped by this uh, new drug. The patients uh, were out of the hospital within a couple of weeks, where previously they had been in as long as a couple of months. And of course, this reduced hospital costs and made a tremendous advance. Uh, this um, uh, cyclosporin story, uh, which we're not going into detail, but it was uh, uh, started by Sir Roy Kahn, who was president of the Transplant Society a few years ago. And here's a picture of him. He's probably, uh, uh, probably uh, the first Jewish samurai uh, <laughs> that they ever had in, uh, in Japan. Uh, but in full uh, regalia here, uh, and the temperature, he said, was about 103, and he was very uncomfortable, I guess, in many ways. Then, but there are other immunosuppressive molecules that are being looked at and have actually been invented uh, in our laboratories. That is, their immunosuppressive properties uh, have been uh, uh, disclosed uh, by uh, Randall Morris and his uh, uh, research group. Uh, rapamycin is now being in combination with cyclosporin, and it would look uh, as though we could reduce uh, the uh, use, uh, the amount, uh, the dosages of cyclosporin. Well, let's look at the survival statistics uh, over these three periods of time that I've been talking to you about. Uh, the first uh, period when we had only azathioprine and prednisone, uh, our five-year survival was only about 22% of these patients. In the middle period, when we had heart biopsy and an anti-thymocyte globulin, which was also made in our laboratories, we didn't sell it across state lines, incidentally, uh, but it uh, uh, brought the five-year survival uh, above 40%. But in the cyclosporin era, the modern era, uh, of heart transplantation, five-year survival uh, will run as high as 75 or possibly even uh, 80%. Now, cyclosporin does have 
like all very strong drugs, has significant uh, uh, side effects or toxicity. And it's interesting when it was used first by Roy Kahn, whom you saw there a minute ago, in kidney transplants, the deleterious effect on the kidney uh, was not uh, uh, known uh, to the extent in which it was actual. Uh, but when we started using it in heart transplantation, uh, you can see in this uh, creatinine clearance determinations as uh, compared or contrasted to a bunch of patients uh, without uh, cyclosporin that there is this reduction in creatinine clearance. And as a matter of fact, now about 20 of our long-term heart transplant patients have had to undergo kidney transplantation uh, because of uh, cyclosporin. Another big problem in heart transplantation has been the development of disease in the coronary arteries of the transplant. And you can see, I think, in this picture how in a large coronary artery uh, there is this significant encroachment on the lumen and here in a smaller one almost total obliteration. And what this means is, I think, that any serious program in heart transplantation has also uh, to uh, promote a program, a simultaneous program of re-transplantation. And you can see now it's uh, been closer to 75 of our patients have had uh, at least uh, a second uh, heart transplant. And two of our patients uh, had a second re-transplant, or if you will, a total of four hearts uh, in the same chest. Well, the, the situation is almost out of control. There are 160 hospitals now in the United States. Sometimes I think there are 160 in the Bay Area uh, doing heart transplantation. And 54 of these actually have uh, pediatric programs. Uh, just to say a minute about uh, pediatric transplantation, cyclosporin uh, made pediatric heart transplantation possible, as well as, as lung transplantation, which we won't be talking about. But because of the steroid-sparing properties of cyclosporin, it was possible to go ahead with transplantation in the pediatric group and know uh, that uh, the, uh, the patient uh, would grow and develop in a normal uh, pattern. Uh, this is a transplant that was done uh, two weeks uh, before on this six-month-old baby. Uh, here he is at age five years, and now, incidentally, he is ten years, uh, a little over ten years following his uh, heart transplant. Uh, interesting case to us for two reasons. Uh, the first one, and we'll have to skip over this in a hurry, is that the heart was removed in Fargo, North Dakota, and it was eight hours uh, before we were able to reestablish coronary circulation uh, to the donor heart. Uh, the second interesting thing in this young man is that he is essentially on no immunosuppression, has absolutely normal coronary arteries, uh, is normal in every regard, and has therefore achieved true chimeric status uh, with respect to his heart graft. Now this is something that Starzl has seen in liver transplants uh, to a much greater extent in numbers uh, than we have seen ever in heart transplants or in lung transplants. But the liver is kind of a stupid organ, I guess, with respect to its immunologic activity, and therefore uh, we would expect it uh, to react. 
But uh, I told you about this paper of Roy Cohn's and Lauer and this other group uh, published in 1962, uh, seven hours duration. And so we were uh, very interested to see that we could validate this clinically with the eight hours duration in the patient that I showed you just a minute ago. Uh, this was uh, written up in the, uh, in the Sunday magazine of the New York Times uh, by our intern at that time, who was a freelance writer, uh, by the way, and uh, 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 I suppose uh, augmented his income significantly in that manner. Uh, but uh, this was uh, kind of, here's uh, Dr. Stinson and the retrieval group uh, that went to, this was just before December, uh, just before Christmas in December of 1986 to the frozen tundra of uh, North Dakota. And uh, we had uh, a, a Lear jet that was uh, uh, taken to get our group uh, uh, up to Fargo. And Stinson went with it because we, wanted, we knew it would be a long interval between the donor and recipient. So we wanted somebody there uh, with considerable experience and expertise in judging uh, uh, the viability or uh, the quality uh, of the donor heart. So Stinson and this group uh, made the trip. Well, uh, when they got back into their Learjet to return uh, to uh, Palo Alto, uh, the motors would not start, and they tried all kinds uh, of, of activities, uh, thrusting a burning broom in the mouth of the jet engine and so forth. But nothing would work, and the heart was, meanwhile, uh, sitting in this uh, little igloo container in cold uh, solution. So Stinson, uh, this uh, uh, Fargo, North Dakota at that time, uh, the National Air Guard had a station there, and he approached the colonel and suggested that we have a military jet to bring the heart back uh, to uh, uh, Moffett Field. And uh, the colonel said, no, we can't do that. He said, our mission is to protect the United States against a, a sneak attack of the Russians over the pole. And so that's not possible. Well, Stinson, if you know him, looked at the colonel uh, with a kind of look that only Ed Stinson can give you and decided, uh, somebody suggested to get a hold of the governor of the state. Uh, who was up for re-election, by the way. <laughs> well, he immediately uh, surmised the, the important uh, publicity that would attend such a thing, so uh, he uh, uh, commanded a uh, jet uh, that brought the heart back to Palo Alto. But nonetheless, eight hours uh, had gone by before we could release the Arctic clamp. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is they, they took uh, civilian aircraft, of course, to get back to Palo Alto, and here they were in their scrub suits and their white coats and walking through the airports in Denver and uh, carrying their instruments uh, here and uh, causing, they thought it was some kind of religious cult <laughs> that had suddenly uh, developed. Well, it was a great story. This is just to, to show you uh, Stinson in a uh, more relaxed, he doesn't quite have that stare. Uh, but it's there. Well, here we are waiting for the heart, almost prayerfully. Uh, this is Vaughn Starnes, who was the chief resident at that time, and we're waiting. 
waiting for it, and I guess uh, here we finally have it and are releasing the aortic clamp. Well, the survival, though, in the pediatric group, until we get out to 10 years, we always say youth must be served, and of course it generally is. Uh, it is we don't see the tremendous advantage in longevity of heart grafts until we get out to about 10 years, the difference, that is, between the so-called adult and the pediatric groups. Well, just to recapitulate some of the things uh, that have been going on uh, during these uh, nearly 40 years, uh, the first uh, successful heart transplant in 59, a long-term survival in 65, we've talked about that, the clinical transplant in 68, a retransplant in 68, which was a very interesting case, transvenous endocardial biopsy in 72, anti-thymocyte globulin in 73, the, first, the successful heart-lung transplant in the lab in 78, long-term survival in 80, cyclosporin in 80, and then in 81, the first clinical heart-lung transplant, which was done by Bruce Wrights, and that, of course, was the first successful lung transplant of any kind uh, in 1981. Heart-lung retransplant in 84, the Novacor, the artificial heart. We've been working for 25 years on the artificial heart, another part of the story, but in the development uh, of, uh, of the treatment or replacement treatment uh, for uh, uh, end-stage heart disease. And then in 1990, uh, Vaughn Starnes uh, did the first living-related pulmonary lobar transplant, uh, a program which he has extended uh, as a professor of cardiac surgery at the University of Southern California. Now, just one quick slide and word about the future. We hear an awful lot about uh, the genetic engineering uh, and the possible availability of animal organs uh, for eventual transplantation. And this, of course, is cross-species transplants or xenograft transplants. But one of our individuals who's a bit more cynical, perhaps, uh, than the tabloids that you read uh, about uh, the pig as possible uh, for human transplantation, uh, has given me this slide that the future of transplantation is the xenograft, uh, but it always will be. And that's kind of an interesting and, I think, appropriate note upon which uh, to end uh, this little uh, program. Thank you very much. Uh, The number now is very close to 150 uh, heart-lung transplants at Stanford. And the longest uh, survivor now is right around 14 years. And the five-year survival is uh, right around 65, 66%. And it's, uh, it's slowly improving, but it's, it's a much more difficult uh, uh, survival uh, situation than a mere heart transplant. Uh, the, you have to think of it this way, that the lung is the only really cutaneous transplant we have. Every time we take a breath, uh, we can contaminate uh, the transplant. So a lung transplant essentially is on the outside of the body. 
and in contact with the rest of the world, whereas all of our other transplants. Uh, so therefore, the problems with infectious complications are much more severe. Okay, thank you. Yeah. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.